0: If, if we transition, you, you made the comment of, okay, if there's one in 20 infiltrates that wind up being MK and 10 to 15% of those wind up with vision loss, then mm-hmm. you've got to look at the idea this, which is the second part of my question that I wanted to have you kind of delve in a little bit more on is, all right, well, what is the actual like numbers needed to treat? If we can reduce your risk of myopic maculopathy from a minus six down to a minus five by 40% by <clears throat> preserving that one diopter, how many of those minus six patients or who would have been a minus six patient had we not intervened, would we need to intervene on to save that one diopter? Did you, did, are your numbers yeah, so we, that
1: for um, that? Yeah, so there is, so you, you've seen a couple of, sort of glimpses pieces of data. So you've seen the safety data, but yeah, um um and you've seen a little bit of the data on risk of myopic maculopathy as a function of level.
0: Is there more that's not published?
1: Yeah well there's there's stuff that's under review. So let me let me let me sort of join the pieces together. Um so first of all um you're very sophisticated, in so much you you mentioned number needed to treat. So, um, the number of kids that you would need to treat to slow myopia by a meaning by an amount to sort of produce that that benefit is actually very low. Mm-hmm. It's in the single digits. Um, and oh, it is. Yeah. Um, so hmm. let me let me pull up. That's the paper pretty right?
0: powerful, then.
1: Um, yeah. So and your number needed it, it,
0: to harm is actually quite high based on the data you've just shared. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. So See, this really- is compelling stuff because, th- I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes people really say, like when they, people say now a standard of care, I, I, I think, yeah, it's part of my care. I don't know that it's standard of care. But if you get into the point of saying number needed a treat of less than 10, that's pretty significant.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, there are. I, I'm going to sort of throw some general numbers at you, sorry. I'm... No, that's why I wanted John. Yeah.
0: Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today's conversation is part two with Mark Bullimore, and we're discussing specifically the incidence of infections in child in children who wear contact lenses. Uh, his, some of his literature related to that, and also uh, the literature related to the amount of vision that we can preserve by reducing overall myopia, which is super compelling. And actually, he gets into data that hasn't been published yet, so it it. The data that I've seen sort of scratches that surface and he was able to answer ideas of things like number needed to treat and number needed to harm and really bring those two ideas together based on his evaluation of all of the evidence that is available to us. So it was a really great conversation for me because I, I, it, it, helped, it helped me wrap my mind around the full impact of what we're doing with myopia management. And, um, and so I'm really grateful for Mark to, to be on and, and discuss that. And so please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, and share it with your friends. And support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, Cooper Vision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight one-day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by Cooper Vision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8-12 to years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details, and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. This has been fireside chat sort of uh, territory here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think um, that's there's kind of two questions that that I want to pick your brain about, and one is not to be um, is because I think if if well one if I can understand the the data better. And where the actual data is coming and how you find those, like one, it would be the 40% of saving one diopter of myopia. How do we get there? And two, the infection stuff. So if I can, and I've read, the, I've read both of those um, papers that you've put out, um, but maybe, to, and, I'm not, and I'm not opposing you in this. I'm just thinking the better I can understand it, the more convincing I can be to other people. Um, because I know there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, they still think kind of cleanses in kids not going to do it. They still think myopia management not really that helpful long term or short term. It's more it's more effort than it's worth it. So in my effort to try to make sure that I'm communicating as effectively as possible to people and trying to also tell them about the evidence but then kind of I think the evidence guides us into why it's important the better job I can do explaining the evidence the better job, I think, or the, the more people will say, yeah, this is important. So those are kind of the questions like, how do we get, how did you get to that point to be able to say, yes, this is how the evidence shows us that um, contact lenses in kids are safe. Can you tell me so, about that?
1: <clears throat> yeah. So those are two great examples of sort of, you know, me sitting in my, my computer and trying to pull um, things together. Now, the other thing I talk about, you know, being a, industry-funded academic, you know, both of those pursuits were really stimulated by interactions with industry or people coming to me and saying, hey, could you put something together? So let's talk about the safety um, aspect. And, you know, before I give you the long history, let me give you the sort of disclaimer. Um you know, people might regard me as a hired gun and um hmm. you know a keyboard you know have keyboard will 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 travel um but you know my my brand, my reputation as an academic is the thing that's most important to me, so <clears throat> if somebody says, "Can you say this and i <laughs> i'm gonna say, "Well, if the evidence supports it, yeah um so you know, pulling information together um, is is important, but you know, I I have the freedom to come up with ever whatever, whatever answer you know I'm led to. So, um, in the case of safety of contact lenses in children, so I you know I'd done some work on uh, contact lens infections and epidemiology. I'd been involved in uh, focus night and days a uh, pivotal study, you know, which involved, you know, almost 10,000 patients and, you know, looking at the rates of infections and classifying what was serious, what wasn't amongst those. So I, 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 I had a little bit of, of involvement there. And then in, you know, again, just before I had left, well, about the time you were uh, graduating from optometry school in the, you know, about 2008, I had done a study that was commissioned by uh, Bausch and Lomb and Paragon to look at the safety of um, overnight orthokeratology, and in that particular instance, um, essentially, you know, orth- overnight orthokeratology or CRT had been approved without age restrictions, basically, um, for the temporary reduction of myopia. But then. Um, Unexpectedly, in the eyes of the FDA, um, it started to be used a lot in children because we were learning that it could slow myopia progression. And at the same time, there was a whole slew of uh, case reports out of the Far East, um, mainly showing that we were getting some serious infections in children. Um, So the FDA said, hang on a minute. They have a mechanism. We need you to do a post-market study to provide some data on safety in children, um, so what we, we we had done that study, and again, you know, it was a company-sponsored study, and it sort of gets criticised um, in some quarters for being, you know, unreliable in that regard. But you know, we're dealing with the FDA, okay? <laughs> they have badges and guns, okay? The, the government, all right? They, um, and you know, it's my academic reputation on the line. We did the study. The data are what they are. Do it. So, anyway, so about five years ago, um, Gary Osborne from CooperVision said, "Hey, Mark, you know, um, would you be able to write a white paper on the safety of uh, contact lenses in children?" And this was ostensibly to support the product development of my site, and you know, t- as part of either
2: yeah
1: uh, submission to the FDA, but in terms of educating practitioners, we're going to get asked about this. What do the data say okay what do, what do the um, what do the papers say? So um, <clears throat> again, you know off I go, how many papers can I find that have followed a meaningful number of children for a meaningful number of time, amount of time? Um, to contribute to some estimate estimate of the, the the safety of uh, uh, contact lenses in children, so I was able to you know identify a number of uh, prospective studies, most of them um, related to myopia. Or there was a big paper out of Ohio State, Jeff Wallen, on self esteem and contact lens wear. So you know you put all the data together, and you sort of like hey, looks looks pretty good. And at the same time, or just previously, the clay study group, um, or a <clears throat> group of, uh, largely women optometry academics had done a similar study. You see my research assistants just, <laughs> um, a similar retrospective study looking at the rates of infections or the rates of, uh, adverse events in different age groups. And they basically came to the same conclusion I did, um, on the, the prospective studies that actually children are the safest teenagers are, uh, um, have a higher rate of infections and then college age people, I don't call them adults, um, uh, college age students, um, uh, have an even higher rate of infections. So the kids are the safest in part, probably because there's, um, adult supervision,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know, and the kids, listen to their parents at that age. Um, teenagers, less so. College age, you know, zero adult supervision. Yeah. So, um, And they also
0: have a history. Of, I mean, that's the other question I would wonder is, they also now have a history of things being okay, right? If they started wearing contacts when they're eight and they were fine and then now they're 16, oh, I've had eight years of history, everything's fine. Familiarity
1: breeds contempt.
0: Yeah. Did yeah. you find that? Do you find that in the evidence? Um, I mean, beyond again, what you're yeah, just describing?
1: Yeah, I mean, you see that, I think, all the time, and you probably see it in your practice. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, you know there's a bio, there is a biological aspect to infections that we still don't fully understand, um, but we do know that you know, if somebody gets a corneal infiltrative event, um, and I'll use that as a catch-all, that may or mm-hmm. may not be infectious, they're at, you know, four times as likely to get a subsequent one than somebody who hasn't had one before. So there's a um, an innate sort of risk. I mean, I, I was um, one of my uh, master's students. This is going back 20 years um, at OSU. We did a study. We were looking at corneal swelling with these new silicon hydrogels mm-hmm. with overnight wear. Um, I wore the, uh, what was it, the um, Bausch and Lomb lens, the pure vision lens. Yep. First night I slept in pure vision. I woke up with a red eye, infiltrate, okay? Ran over to the contact lens clinic, contact lens lab, let every uh, second year student take a look at it, you know, this is what an, inf- this is, yeah, this is what it looks like, okay? <laughs> so, uh, um, again, that's yeah, part of the joys of being in a teaching institution or an academic institution, you, you basically, um, you can, you can take somebody out of the research lab like myself in this case and sort of say,
0: "Here you go. Yeah. Um, well, do you think, well, so let me, let me back up on that again, because you know, when I was, um, when I was being trained, it's not something I think about nearly as much anymore, but you know, there's, there is this proportion of the, of the population in my experience that, that tends to have reactions like that to a silicone yep. hydrogel lens. It's not, it's not a ton, maybe five to 10% in my experience, but, um, shit happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that seems to be less of an, I guess, from a contact lens company standpoint, it seems to be that most contact lens companies aren't concerned about that uh, because they say, they seem to be moving everything. There's some companies that almost exclusively just have silicon hydrogel offerings, as least, at least in a monthly standpoint. So yeah, what are your thoughts
1: uh, on it's, that? It's, you know, I mean, you know, again, the, the silicon hydrogel story is an interesting one. In so much that we thought it was going to be a panacea first yeah. of all, for um, uh, overnight wear and then for daily wear. But, you know, the evidence is quite clear that even with daily wear silicon hydrogel lenses, you get a, a higher incidence of these little ditzels um, than you do with conventional hydrogel. Okay. It's the nature of the material. Now there are other advantages to the material, but, yeah. You know, it, that alone stops it from being a clear um you know stops everybody stops everybody from moving a silicon hydrogel. Right. Um but you know so it's <clears> that there, there there's some good things and bad things. Now as I said with those little peripheral ditzels, you know the the corneal infiltrative events that we see more commonly with silicon hydrogels. They're generally innocuous. Okay. Right. Um, you know, you you take the person out of the lens for a few days, you because you're a naturally conservative guy, you treat it with a topical antibiotic, you know, even put a steroid on top if you want them to feel more comfortable. Um, you do what you do, you be the doctor, and then you move on. Um, but you know, it happens. And, you know, I was certainly one you know, I was a poster child for that on based on one Night of overnight wear and but the other thing that has really sort of <clears throat> I would say revolutionized safety and you know really makes it very attractive um in in anybody but children in particular is going to daily disposables, yeah, so you know one of the key th- things that's attractive about my site is that it is a daily disposable lens. And, you know, we know that sleeping in the lens is probably the number one risk factor for increasing rates of infections, but things related to solutions and cases are sort of two and three. (laughs) So (laughs) if you can get those three things out of the way, you're likely to have better safety um, of a contact lens. Um, I would say the third, the other thing that's been equally important is these, yeah. um, You know, you can now, in any of your patients, you know, they can call a number if um, they've got a problem. So, you know, I would say if I was seeing patients, you know, if you have a painful red eye, you need to reach out to me right away so we can address it. And as your doctor, I'm, I'm available to you. Yeah. Um, you know, what the, what the you know, I think if you say painful red eye, you're going to see some uncomfortable red eyes as well. But again, you can nip it in the bud. You can, you're an associate, can see it and deal with it right away before it. You know, there's a risk of it being more serious.
0: But well, and that's in, in the in the literature that you looked at and reviewed. Um, what were those numbers like when you said? Because you, because I think that's a great point too. I mean, I think those are the four big ones that I think about. Is you know, obviously, sleeping in lenses, uh, cases, um, solution responses or solution improperness, and then also how uh, uh, quick somebody gets in to see those.
1: Yeah. So if so you, like, if you uh, mitigate
0: that, what's the numbers uh, for, for kids in contacts?
1: Um. So basically, you, know, in, in all of the studies I reviewed, there was not any cases of microbial keratitis in eight to 12 year olds Um, now, and that represents probably over 2000 years of wear. Now in the recently published um, Blink study, um, Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, three year study, Ohio State and Houston randomizing kids to two different strengths of bifocals or a single vision lens, they did have one, um, case of presumed microbial keratitis but you know if it was if, if you look at the details of that case and they presented it um, at the academy meeting as part of the, the general safety profile it was pretty iffy okay you say
0: um, iffy iffy as in they were just being overly cautious or if um, yeah i mean it might there have was... been a peripheral infiltrate that had a little overlying staining and they just called it microbial keratitis
1: that was kind you of, you 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 nailed it. Okay. <laughs> it was a relatively small um peripheral, you know. Um so uh, one of the one of the things, you know, hindsight's 2020 20 or 2015. 20, um <laughs> one of the things that uh Waleen acknowledged is that you know they didn't go into this study expecting to see these ca things, so they didn't have a classification scheme in place. So <clears throat> uh so basically they had the data safety and monitoring committee reviewing these adverse events and you know there were three optometrists uh three clinicians on that group who sort of made a decision on this but yeah it was a peripheral infiltrate i think based on its size it wouldn't have met the criteria for probable mk Mm -hmm. in some of the studies that that i've been involved with so you know the ortho case study that we you know the that we did, Um, you know, <clears throat> even before we started reviewing cases, we had our criteria for what was probable MK, what was possible MK and what hmm. was, what was not. So can you,
0: can you, do you, did you have that off the top of your head? Like, cause I, again, I'm not a, I'm not a researcher, uh, but I, I think it's really I
1: mean, common. Um, it would be the same things that you would look at. So basically to be probable MK, you need to have an infiltrate that's at least one millimeter in diameter overlying staining um pain uh greater than mild, so you know it can't be just discomfort it has to be pain
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and then one of one of the three you know a, a purulent discharge an a c reaction or shit, what's the third one um Uh, or a positive culture, I think. So if you look at different studies, um, they typically use that construct. And then they will just below that um, uh, have a sort of possible MK that fails to meet all of those criteria. So it might not be big enough. um, There wasn't that much pain, you know, there wasn't really any sort of nasty discharge, AC reaction or whatever, but you thought it was still probably, you know, or might be an MK. So typically, you know, so if you take all infiltrates, okay, all infiltrative events in soft lenses, um, one in 10 or one in 20 mm-hmm. typically be classified as MK. Now, again, you know, you have the ability to treat and be cautious. You treat them all the same, right? Okay? Right, and that was something that we went back and forth with the FDA on in that in that uh ortho case study because they said, you know, treatment, you know, if the treatment was consistent with MK, then that was MK. Make you think it's right. like bollocks, okay? Yeah. Because Chris Wolfe is going to reach for the same antibiotic, whether it's he thinks it's MK or he he thinks it's Not M K. All right. I mean, that's so. We have the ability to treat. We treat. Okay. Um, So the the treatments like you know isn't a good indication of what the practitioner thinks. But generally, as you've probably already figured out, when you're when you're doing these studies, either prospectively or retrospectively, you don't let the clinician decide. You don't let the clinician's Mm. treatment dictate. You have a an independent panel of 3 to 5 people who look at the the case and say you know what is it okay and it's like a um what do you call it a mor- mortality morbidity conference um in a hospital which mm-hmm. they have on a regular basis okay who died all right, right. but the, um what 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 are we what are we saying here um be, yeah want to, because you want to you want transparency, but you want to get ahead of anything that might be coming down the pipe. So, um, so yeah, those are the things that you look for. And, um, you know, the challenge in the, the Blink study is they didn't have a construct there. Could they have gone to a Shine paper or a Bullimore paper or a Chalmers paper and said, let's use what they did? Yeah. But they, yeah you know, they had one case, okay? Right. But, yeah, it was pretty, eh, you know, it was... <laughs> And it was the same, actually, in um, if in the MySight retrospective study. They had, um, you know, it wasn't MySight lenses, uh, but the FDA wanted a large retrospective uh, practice-based sample of uh, um, young soft lens wearers and to, to est- get another estimate of what the incidence of um, uh, microbial keratitis might be. And again, if you dig into those data, um I think they had two cases of m mm-hmm. k, but you know they were pretty soft you know? yeah. um and yeah, the other thing that it, you know you have to uh uh remember is that my phone my uh, watch it's all
2: mind. good it's said, all good
1: I was just telling me there's another podcast for me to listen to um, <laughs> but the uh you know the other thing is you know you've got this Basket of infiltrates, and yeah, a small pr- proportion of those will be classified as MK, um, and of those, a small proportion will lead to any vision loss. So, typically, you know, between five and fifteen percent of MK leads to vision loss. Mm. So that's an important thing when we talk about um, placing safety in the context of. Um, vision saved by, you know, reducing the, the risk of macular yeah, um, yeah, yeah. maculopathy or whatever. Um, not, you know, just because you've got something that is an MK, it doesn't mean that that's vision loss. And again, some people lose that. Oh, you know, patient's got MK. And part of that comes from the, um, you know, ophthalmologists or optometrists who work in a hospital who see the real train wrecks? Yeah. And part of it is just misconception that people say MK vision loss. No. Right. Um, even in the most you know, conservative of cases or, or um, conservative of studies, you know, it's 15%. But when you look at other studies, it's four or five percent. And you know, again, what kind of lenses were these people wearing? What kind of care systems were they using? When was this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the field- And did they get into and did they did is that study being done by a tertiary care center that is yeah. seeing the train wrecks and not in primary care that is taking care of a majority of them before yeah. they get Yeah. I bad? mean, some of
1: our best studies have been done in, you know, Australia where optometrists weren't treating these things and at you know, the time that the studies were done, you know, in the late nineties. Um the um you know the anything that was you know any corneal infection was going to be seen at one of these hospitals or one of these tertiary centers or whatever. Um so chances are that they were not only capturing the 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 mild ones, but mm, also okay. the moderate and the extreme. And if anything you probably did see more severe cases because of the setting if you do the studies as part of um you know as prospectively like the blink study and you you know you end up with you know 300 kids wearing soft lenses for three years so that's you know, that's as big a sample you would get outside of an fda post-market mm-hmm. surveillance study you know that's that's a that's a huge data so yeah you're gonna see shit and but generally, you know, you would not expect even in that number of cases to, to see perhaps more than one case of MK or possible MK. And you certainly wouldn't expect to see any vision loss, in part because it's extremely rare and in part because these kids are in a study and they are kids. Um, they get in sort of there's more caution, there's more care involved and perhaps, you know. Somebody uh, buying contact lens online as a young adult and you know, not paying too much attention to things. So,
0: Well, so then let me transition that into, because I do want to be respectful of your time, is that if, if we transition, you, you made the comment of, okay, if there's 1 in 20 infiltrates that wind up being MK and 10 to 15% of those wind up with vision loss, Then Mm -hmm. you've got to look at the idea this, which is the second part of my question that I wanted to have you kind of delve in a little bit more on is, all right, well, what is the actual like numbers needed to treat? If we can reduce your risk of myopic maculopathy from a minus six down to a minus five by 40%, preserving that one diopter, how many of those minus six patients or who would have been a minus six patient had we not intervened, would we need to intervene on to save that one diopter? Did you... Are your number yeah, so that?
1: Um, yeah, so there is so you you've seen a couple of sort of glimpses pieces of data. So you've seen <laughs> the safety data, but yeah. You know, um, um, and you've seen a little bit of the data on risk of myopic maculopathy as a function of level Is of
0: there more that's not published?
1: Yeah, well there's there's stuff that's under review. So let me let me let me sort of join the pieces together. Um so first of all um you're very sophisticated in so much you you mentioned number needed to treat so um the number of kids that you would need to treat to slow myopia by a meaning by an amount to sort of produce that that benefit is actually very low. Mm-hmm. it's in the single digits um and oh it is yeah um. So hmm. let me, let me pull up. That's paper, pretty right?
0: powerful then.
1: Um, yeah. So And your number it, needed
0: to harm is actually quite high based on the data you've just shared. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. So See, this me- is compelling stuff because th- I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes people really say like when they, people say now a standard of care. I, I I think, yeah, it's part of my care. I don't know that it's standard of care, but if you get into the point of saying number needed a treat of less than 10, that's pretty significant.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are... I, I'm going to sort of throw some general numbers at you. Sorry. I'm,
0: no, that's why I wanted John. on. Um,
1: I'm just pulling up the paper here so I can actually give you the numbers. So, so one of the things, and again, this was, this was something that was requested or by, by Cuba Vision, a um, young lady in uh, the UK called Elizabeth Lama, who's an optometrist and is sort of um, in charge of uh, medical affairs in Europe. She said, hey, you know, would it be possible for you to compare the risk of vision loss um, associated with wearing contact lenses with the benefit of preventing vision loss associated with myopia control. And she asked me this two, three years ago. And like so many things, I didn't have the answer right away. Um, and I thought, you know, uh, you know, it's my interest in it. Let me think about that. Let me think about it. I thought about it. I thought about it some more. And, you know, the challenge was that you had to come up, you had to compare data on the incidents of a monocular infection um, and the incidence of vision loss in a young kid um, wearing contact lenses with the potential prevention of visual impairment um, somewhere down the road associated with a diopter of myopia control. And I, it took me a long while to figure out how to put those pieces together because they were, you know, you initially you're comparing apples and oranges okay you've got data on risk um based on incidents and you've got data on you know risk of prevalence and vision loss so um so let me let me go back to your um, um the issue of uh, that you asked about number needed to uh treat so this this paper was submitted um uh for publication about two weeks ago yeah um it took a long time and went through a number of uh, iterations and you know for example you know i you know there were things i wasn't comfortable about and i needed to think about some more there was just my own inertia um that sort of often takes over and i you know i put things aside and it takes me a while to get back to them um but then as often happens, I'll have a little bit of an aha moment. It's like, oh yeah, no, the answer's here. I and then I flurry of activity, and you throw it out to co-authors again. And it's like, hey guys, I, yeah. Um, so where are we? I'm just uh, I'm just looking here. Number needed to treat. So, um, so just to put it in context, so we're familiar with the ocular hypertension treatment study. Yep. Um, or ocularhypertensive, was it OATS? Yes.
0: OATS, right? yep. yeah.
1: Where they found that if you put a person on an ocular hypertensive for five years, you could reduce the incidence of glaucoma field loss or optic nerve changes um, from, say, 10%, 10, 10% to,
0: five to 5%. Percent. Yep. Okay. So, one in 20.
1: One in 20. Yep. So you need to treat <laughs> 20, 20 people, 20 people for five years to prevent one case. So the and that obviously
0: be- tra- changes. I, I want to interject because I think some of our listeners may not fully think through this all the time. Like you, you obviously do. But that number would change, obviously, if you're, if you're scaling your treatment based on risk factors. So patients that have thin corneas, higher IOPs, more suspicious nerves, family history, right? Like if their risk would go yeah, you, up.
1: You, you keep believing that, Chris.
0: No, you don't think so.
1: <laughs> no, I'm being, I'm being <laughs> facetious. Yes, okay. it probably it probably does. Um, I'm not saying
0: that to diminish what 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 you're saying, no, no, but no. we've I, accepted. I, I, I
1: agree <laughs> that number, but that number needed to treat is twenty patients for right. five years for so the you whole need cohort. That, yeah, yeah, a hundred patient years in order to. Um, uh, um, prevent one case. Right. Okay. And that's to prevent one case of Glauco- early, glaucoma. early
0: glaucoma. And we've accepted okay. that. We've accepted that that's, that's okay.
1: Yeah. It's, it's become standard of care because, yeah, you know, we have, in most cases, cheap, innocuous therapies, um, you know, to do that. Um, but, you know, when you get to my age, you, you come into contact with decisions to sort of treat. So, you
0: know, my cholesterol is a little high okay yeah. am i one know, in 300 <laughs> one in 300 for a statin you know that
1: yeah no I've, it's actually probably <laughs> in the paper okay um because you know i work with ophthalmologists who think about these things for, you know as, as physicians but yeah no the, the numbers for statins are, are so, astronomical. the um so let me let me just uh where are we um this is probably not the best document to look at because everything's segregated. Uh, I'm just trying to find the uh, the table with the number needed to treat for myopia. Here. So here we go. So, <clears throat> um, so you can um, do the same math, and I'm sorry to keep you on.
0: No, it's this, good. I'll I'll sitting. cut this all out. Make you look no, sharp. It, uh, I think like you had it thanks. right off the top of your head.
1: Yeah, no. <laughs> so, the number needed to treat, okay, to prevent five years of visual impairment, okay, in, uh, in somebody who's destined to be a minus six is about five. Whoa. <laughs> okay. So, the number needed to treat um, to prevent one year. Um is actually you know, a fifth of that, so wow. it's almost a one to one ratio. so the benefits, at least according to our calculations, are um you know in- incredibly favorable um in terms of um you know, so five years of visual impairment, wow. you typically need you know to treat five patients um in order to get that benefit now the reviewers may savage that but i've got some pretty smart people who've already looked at it either as co-authors or as uh uh collaborators who uh um now <clears throat> so take on the on the contact lens side okay so if you consider um let's consider a medium risk contact lens where the incidence the annual incidence is of mk is five cases per 10,000 patients, okay? So that's a a high end for daily wear, all right? You, um, you know, you go through the same math and you come up with the number needed to harm, okay? The number of patients you need to expose for five years of contact lens wear to produce five years of vision loss, uh so it's the other side of that coin, the number's 190. Okay. So you're looking at five versus one ninety. The number needed to treat is five, the number needed to harm is 190. So the 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 needle is firmly pointing towards the um you know the benefits outweighing
2: um oh have I lost you, Chris? I'll keep
1: talking. Um, the number the number needed to uh,
0: you're back. I'm back. Sorry. So you were I, I I got this. So you were saying the number of patients that needed to harm would be what? Um, 190. So yeah. So, to-
1: so you so basically um, to 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 save five years of vision and, and
0: harm is vision loss from okay.
1: For vision loss from contact lenses. Okay. Okay. So you would need to treat, sorry, you would need to expose um, 190 patients to five years of contact lens wear in order to produce five years of vision loss. And I'm saying vision loss because the criteria for vision loss in those contact lens studies is typically either 20, 40. Or two two line loss, okay. And the other, of course, the other caveat is that's one eye. <laughs> okay. So, uh, like the old Spagnolli joke, I will risk one eye. Um, if you don't know the joke, I'll tell you it offline. Um, the um, so when you, however, you look at this, um, even even if you go to ortho K and you assume a very high level of risk of microbial keratitis. It's still, the odds are still firmly in favor of, you know, sorry, the, the, the scales are st- clearly tipped in favor of the benefits of myopia control far outweighing the risks. Okay. So, you know, I may end up having my pants down on this one once this goes through review. Um, but, I really don't think so. In terms of how you look at these data, and again, you know, why why haven't we figured this out before? Well, I had to first of all develop a construct to sort of compare, um, and I'll send you the paper so you yeah. can you can look at it and sort of go through uh, and come back to me with more questions. Um, you know, I had to develop a construct so you could actually compare the risks of vision loss from contact lens wear with the risk of vision loss or vision gained from lowering the levels of myopia. Um, But also, you know, we've only recently got good data on the relationship between visual impairment and myopia level. Um, You know, and there's still really only a couple of studies out there. Um, So for, you know, and the data, I'm going to show you the data in a minute make sure I've uh where are we? My opiation impairment. I'm gonna show you a uh, the, the the data I uh use. Uh, frequency redo
2: here we go. Uh, all right um so let me I'm gonna share my screen just to show you a graph here uh, or a couple of graphs. Um <clears throat>
0: Let me allow you to share it.
1: Yeah, I'm just um, I'm just making sure I got the graphs readily available because yeah, like many of my spreadsheets is uh, there's a it's a train wreck um, in terms of you know, I draw a graph, then I draw another graph. Okay, so you <laughs> see my screen now? Yes, sir. Okay, so this is um, where are we? Let's go to this. So these are data from um 15,000 patients across multiple studies in Rotterdam and basically I've re-plotted their data the the, the paper that that um the paper this is from is called um so people can find this online uh, the association of axial length with risk of uncorrectable visual impairment in the europeans with myopia mm-hmm. but basically they have in that paper um graphs that show that um, and you've probably seen these presented by me and other people um, showing the uh, um, the cumulative risk of visual impairment as a function of age for different levels of axial length and different levels of myopia okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: so this paper is publicly available and it's you know if you're willing to go through it it's fairly accessible you can you can be impressed by the, uh, the data. But what I did was I said, okay, let's replot it in terms of level of myopia. And what you see here, are a, a set of exponential curves for different age groups. But when again, you put them on a log scale, um, those curves are uh, straight lines and are remarkably parallel. Um, that is to say, the relationship between cumulative risk of visual impairment and level of myopia is remarkably consistent across different age groups, okay? So obviously, the risk <laughs> increases with age, the risk increases with level of myopia. So you can do a multiple regression and come up with an equation that will give you the risk of visual impairment as a function of age and myopia, okay? Hmm. So that's something we do in that paper, and we Could go about be, it.
0: Can I ask you one more question? Sure. Uh, um, there actually be um, a case where where um, amount of myopia and myopic maculopathy are sort of um, they uh, are not cause and effect but they're sort of covariance together where, where it's the case that even if we re- so maybe patients are more at risk for developing more myopia but also a separate risk at the same time that they're going to be developing myopic maculopathy where yeah. even if we reduce
1: that they so, so what I'm what I'm showing you here is uh,
0: that's that's the other thing I think might people might say.
1: Well these data are agnostic in terms of the cause of visual impairment. So this isn't mm. myopic macular degeneration, this is loss of vision. Okay. Okay. So obviously myopic maculopathy is a big component here, but so is detachment. Um glaucoma is probably a, a huge feature here as well but it's probably myopic maculopathy that's really driving this because as we sort of talked about um, early on, each additional diopter of myopia increases your risk of myopic maculopathy by about 67%. Looking at these curves, each additional diopter of myopia increases your risk of visual impairment, regardless of age, by about 30%. Okay. So... The, the other thing I wanted to show you is you know, this is one study. Um, these are the same data here, um, but in the last year there was a paper by one of my collaborators um, published on French people, which essentially shows nearly identical data. So these are these are French individuals, the dotted line at the top here, over 60. These are French myopes under sixty and um, and they agree pretty well with the uh, or very well I think with the the Dutch data, so we've got some independent uh support for here, but it's only these recent data that look at visual impairment and eye disease as a function of level of myopia that really allow us to quantify what the potential benefit is regarding um um my um, of of the potential benefit of myopic control, so we can see here on these these graphs and others the relationship between level of myopia and visual impairment or risk of myopic maculopathy or risk of glaucoma. Um, they all follow the you know a very similar trajectory it's just the slope is slightly different um, you can then infer. Well, if I lower somebody's myopia or I save a diopter of myopia in childhood, there's going to be a long-term benefit that I can, again, quantify in terms of their risk of visual visual impairment when they get to be older. Um, Now, one of the challenges of this field, twofold, one is from a public health point of view, you're intervening early to get a benefit later on, which may deter government organizations from paying for it because Mm -hmm. nobody wants Mm -hmm. to, uh, um, pay for something today that, you know, somebody else is going to benefit from down the road. Um, so stay away from politics on that one. The other (laughs) thing is that, you know, to do a study that would demonstrate, oh yeah, um, you know, never going to happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Some people say, Oh, you know, we've got the resources to yeah, do that. No way. Um, now um, I'm just going to show you sort of uh, some other, uh, other data here that I'm preparing for uh, a presentation next week, which is not public, but, uh, <laughs> um, but basically, you know, you can begin to get some inference from some longitudinal data. So um, I'm going to, pull up the soundbite here that, that, that sort of uh, um, talks about this. And again, I want to show you the data um, and also, you know, show you what one of my smart colleagues has, has said in terms of uh, doing this. I hate it when I get the, the Microsoft bar of death here. Um, <laughs> so what happens if I actually just get rid of that? Is it actually going to give me Microsoft PowerPoint anyway? Let's see whether it comes to life. But basically, um, we are now seeing some longitudinal data where people over a 15 to 20 year period are looking at the prevalence of myopia and looking at the prevalence of myopic maculopathy and visual impairment. So there's a paper by, uh, it's not coming up, so I'll just talk about it. There's a paper by OEDA, um, U-E-D-A, that looked at uh, the prevalence of myopia in the early part of the century, and then more recently, and also looked at the prevalence of um, myopic maculopathy. And what they observed is that the prevalence of myopia at the turn of the century in their older population was in the 30s, now, uh, 15 years later, it's in the 40s. So there's been a 10% increase in the prevalence of myopia among older adults in this sort of captive population that they're studying. Um, At the same time, the prevalence of myopic maculopathy has gone up from about 1.5% to (laughs) 3.5%. So we have some longitudinal evidence Showing a clear association between the prevalence of myopia mm. and the prevalence of uh, myopic maculopathy. Now, could we dig into their data a little bit further and see whether there's an association between level of myopia and risk of myopic maculopathy? They probably have the data to look at that, um, but again, you know, these are things that are going to Evolve in the coming years. We're going to have more data. We'll have a more. We'll have a better sense of these things. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I can clearly place my hand on my heart and say, you know, in slowing down a kid's myopia, you're doing them a big favor down the road. Um, yeah,
0: I I believe that too. I'm just trying to. I, in that in that question, I was asking was to try to play doubles game because no, I, I no, do because, see a lot of times where people will say we don't have a we don't we never we don't have a big randomized placebo controlled trial that says that's going to correlate over time and you know yeah. I, and, and when, when people say that at some point you just got to say well i mean okay i mean yeah but it,
1: it's a, it's a reasonable inference i mean yeah you know, agreed
0: the, the, agreed
1: the thing i thing i say is like you know if you're sitting in your consulting room and somebody comes in carrying an umbrella and their shoes are wet it's raining <laughs> you don't need to go outside and check okay <laughs> Um yeah. now that's a cross sectional example, but I think <laughs> the relationship between myopia and eye disease is so you know is so strong um and you see it across you know a host of different studies um and we're now seeing data on the relationship between myopia, the level of myopia and visual impairment, and you know the first studies we're seeing you know Admittedly, in Europeans, they look like they have the same trajectory. It's it's okay to take those data and at least develop a construct or develop a prediction of what good we might do. And as I said, you end up with um, uh, whether you look at numbers needed to treat, whether you look at um, years of visual impairment um, saved, then you know you can do a you can do a lot of good. So um yeah we're basically saying that uh in terms of an individual um we can save a year of visual impairment by slowing myopia by a So,
0: um, yeah this is this is great stuff and this is exactly what i was was after